Welcome to the Nicole Murphy Podcast, where we explore the impact of media and the power of individual stories on the world that we live in today. Enjoy! Hello, today on the Nicole Murphy Podcast, we have Rachel Emanuel, who went to Carleton University. She works for True North as a political journalist. And, you know, you graduated from one of the top universities in Canada for journalism. Yeah, absolutely. How, what was your journey to go to Carleton University for journalism? Sure. So when I was in high school, you know, around grade 12, everyone starts to get pretty stressed out because you have to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life, or at least what you'll be interested in studying for the next four years. Um, I was really interested in writing and I was really interested in politics. So that sort of naturally led me to say, maybe I would be interested in studying journalism. And I knew I wanted to do it with a political bent to it. So studying in the capital up in Ottawa seemed like the obvious choice. And of course, Carleton's journalism program is very renowned. So I eagerly applied and I was very excited when I was accepted. And yeah, I moved up to Ottawa to begin my to begin my adventure studying journalism and my pursuit of being a political journalist and was obviously uh, fa- fairly successful in that. Yeah, give people a little bit of your background in the successes and, and the achievements you've had in your journalism career. Yeah, so I mean... I'm just going to preface this by saying I don't really think journalism school was worth the money and the time and the effort, and I didn't love my experience at Carleton. It is a very radical left-wing university in Canada. I remember before I entered university, and even while I was in university, I would hear these stories of crazy universities in the States that were so bent on persecuting conservatives, and I just thought, man, that was so crazy. And it wasn't until after I graduated and I really reflected on my time at Carleton that I realized that the same thing is happening at Carleton. It is a very left-wing university, and I certainly experienced that sort of bias from my professors and things. That being said, while I didn't enjoy my university experience, I was dedicated to stick it out because I knew that I wanted to be a political journalist. And so even when something's difficult, if you have a very clear goal of where you're trying to get to, that makes it a little bit easier. And so uh, I studied poli-sci and I studied journalism and being in Ottawa, there's obviously a lot of opportunities to do internships and things like that on the Hill. So I also worked at my student newspaper, which gave me some really good experience during one of the summers in between my third and fourth year. I worked at a newspaper in my hometown in the Niagara region, which gave me some really good hands-on experience just covering local news. I knew I wanted to do politics, but it was still a good way to get your name printed above some articles. And then when I was in fourth year, I interned at a company called iPolitics, and that's a subsidiary of the Toronto Star, although their ownership, I believe, has changed in recent years. And basically what they had me doing was going up to parliamentary committee meetings. So the House of Commons has tons of different committees, which is essentially the lifeblood of parliament. And what these committees do is they study specific legislation in their purview, and in between that, they conduct studies of issues ongoing in the Canadian economy and in the justice system. So I was covering these committees and writing reports about what they were saying. And that gave me a really good sense of how Parliament operates and what the ongoing issues of the day being discussed on the Hill were. And so when I finished university, I had the opportunity to apply for an internship at the Globe and Mail. And so I applied for that. And I think I was able to stand out from my peers because one of the 
most common questions you'll get when you're applying for a job in journalism is they'll say, well, if we hired you, what would you pitch for us in tomorrow morning story meeting? So for most students at Carleton, you know, you're trying to come up with some things that you've seen in the headlines, maybe have a unique spin to it, maybe the construction ongoing in center block, things like that. But I was able to have very specific story ideas that I was pitching based on the committees that I was covering and just show that I really knew my stuff and was able to set myself apart that way. So I spent three months interning at the Global Mail's Ottawa Bureau, which was such a great experience. I had a lot of hands on help from editors to really improve my writing. And they just kind of threw me in the deep end where like, you can go to this press conference and ask questions and start covering things. So that was a really good training ground. And then I ended up getting hired back at iPolitics to work this time as a reporter. And so I spent about two and a half years uh, covering the federal government for iPolitics, which is a mainstream media outlet, as I mentioned, and eventually decided I didn't want to work in the mainstream media anymore because of the censorship that I was experiencing. So I left and I moved to Alberta and I joined independent media. I love it. And, and the reason to hear your achievements is not because we are necessarily valuing what the system thinks of you. But I want to paint a picture for people that you were successful within the system as well, even though there was challenges for you. You're you're trained as a journalist and you spent a lot of time going through the hoops to to build your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I was really excited about having those opportunities. And it was my desire to work as a reporter within the mainstream system. Even at that point already, there was a lot of concerns about bias within the mainstream media. And I knew that I was sort of singled out and stood out as someone who had a more of a conservative bent, which is totally fine. You have reporters with different bents. You have reporters that are more left-leaning. And I noticed there was sort of an absence of that conservative bent in some of the mainstream media outlets, even at places like the National Post had seemed to move more to the center outlets that were traditionally considered more conservative. And I thought I could maybe come and fill that void and be a different type of voice, but it was actually quite impossible for me to do so. And so eventually I made the decision to leave. Um, There's some common misconceptions that I was fired and was forced out, but I actually made the decision to leave on my own because I didn't want to work in a system that was so bogged down by censorship and by just looking at things from one angle and one perspective all the time. Yeah. And, and so what was that a hard decision for you? It was a hard decision for me. I thought about it for a pretty long time. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, which lasted about two, two and a half years, there was many times when I was challenged and I felt like my conscience was being sort of rubbed the wrong way. And I had to make the decision as to what I was going to do. But as I mentioned, I was really determined to stick it out and be that voice. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I realized that none of the work that was being published under my name was stuff that I agreed with or that I felt proud of. And also when I began to really lose autonomy over my work in the sense that as a writer, you should always have final say as to what's being printed. Of course, you should have copy editors, but once the copy editors look at your story, they should go back to you and be like, are these changes correct? Because sometimes copy editors can take a little bit too much leeway and they can reword things in a way that actually makes it factually incorrect. And so I was having my copy editors take a lot of leeway with my work and they would show it to me. And I would say, no, like, I don't agree with this specific wording that you've used. I don't agree with the way that you've reframed the story and clearly added a very left-wing bias into it. And so it was becoming just impossible to have any work published under my name that I even wanted to share online or that I felt proud of. And so it was really just a demoralizing experience. 
And so ultimately I, I made the decision to leave and it was absolutely the right decision for me. And I'm definitely much happier working in independent media. Yeah. Now, now do you work um, just for True North or do you have multiple people that you write for? What does your, what is, what does it look like now for you? I was freelancing for a while and I worked for a variety of outlets, including the Epoch Times, the Counter Signal, True North, but currently I'm full-time with True North as their Alberta correspondent. That's so awesome. So what, how have you changed after making that jump to come to Alberta and like you moved across the country, you're now working for independent media. Like what's different? What's, what's different for you? I think the main thing that's different is I don't feel this constant burden on my conscience about being printing things that I'm uncomfortable with and I disagree with. I don't constantly have to haggle with editors over the specific word choice. I think we generally agree that there is a bias in the mainstream media and I'm not being forced to comply with that bias. So it's just been a really freeing experience and I've been able to do more work that I'm proud of and be able to just follow my conscience. So it's been a very simple transition. Obviously, I have a lot of sources and friends from when I worked in mainstream media that don't take my calls anymore, which is totally okay. You obviously learn who your real friends are nowadays. And I think if you're a conservative, you're used to people just simply not wanting to give you the time of day simply because you are a conservative, but it's been a very natural transition and I'm enjoying it a lot. Good. I'm curious because when you were in journalism school, like what were some journalism fundamentals that that you don't see playing out now in mainstream or legacy media? It was kind of an interesting experience studying journalism just because it's not really the type of de- it's not really the type of thing you need to study in a university. It certainly doesn't require four years. Most of the stuff I've learned about reporting is things you've just learned by trial and error on the job. The fun thing about the job is every story is different. So you're going to have new challenges that arise with every story. But for example, we had like a full first year course on the history of making paper and like how the radio was built which is not why I got into journalism. I'm frankly just not super interested in that to begin with. So that was like a whole year basically of just wasted time that they needed to fill because obviously universities want to have as many students as possible and they make a lot of money off of these types of things. But I think when you talk about the fundamentals of journalism, even when I was studying, you could already see the biases creep in and For example, one of my professors, who's now the head of the journalism program at Carleton, ran for the Liberal Party on several occasions. So there was just a very obvious bent among the program. And I remember studying, for example, a foreign correspondence class, which is when you're a reporter who goes overseas to cover a war zone. That used to be a lot more common. Nowadays, to save money, outlets will often just hire someone that already lives in the region as a contract employee. But not always. There are still some foreign correspondents that go overseas. And It was even very difficult to have discussions in my class because a lot of the people within the program thought that it was very offensive that journalists would want to cover a war scene and they said that it was exploiting people, even though you actually really need to cover these types of issues to draw larger attention to it. For example, if you're covering a famine that's ongoing, a lot of times the rest of the world isn't aware that there's a famine. And then NGOs might be more likely to say, this is something that we need to raise money for. This is somewhere we need to go and attend to and to bring food and supplies. So it was just interesting seeing my classmates. They just thought the idea of being a foreign correspondent was offensive and would often shut down debates in the class. And the professors were often very quick to go along with things like that. And I remember when I first started university. It was just the year that Sun News had shut down the Sun News Network. 
And I remember Ezra Levant had gone and started Rebel News actually. And I had kind of followed Sun News with some interest. So I followed Ezra Levant's jump to Rebel News as well and followed it with interest to see what they were doing. And I remember in one of my very first ever journalism classes, the professor kind of showed what Rebel News was online and talked about just how horrible it was that this was happening and ongoing. So it, it was basically just four years of propaganda. And when it wasn't coming the, from the professors, it was coming from the students within the class. So so even, and when you were working in mainstream, I always ask people, like, what do you think the percentages of people who are generally bought into what's going on versus just want to keep their job? You know what I mean? And you, and, and through COVID, that's, that was a lot of pressure for media professionals, but I think a lot of them really believe it, like what you're saying in schools and the professors. Yeah. I mean, I think that most of the people who just want to keep their job left during COVID if they didn't really buy into it because it became so untenable. And we've seen time and time again, we've seen countless stories of reporters leaving mainstream outlets and just saying that they were censored at their workplace. So I think it's a very small minority of people that are still within the mainstream media that disagree with what we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic and the government overreach there. And I think you can obviously learn a lot about a reporter by the questions they ask in a press conference. And when every single reporter is asking the federal health minister and the tourism and the travel minister why they are implementing more restrictions and harder restrictions and more lockdowns, as opposed to asking if the restrictions that we're seeing are really warranted, that's very indicative of what's going on within that reporter's head because they get to decide what questions they're going to ask. And I think it's very clear from questions that were being asked that they all sort of agreed with what was going on and in fact even wanted there to be more severe restrictions. So then from your perspective, what qualities, characteristics do you think makes a really good reporter, a really good journalist? A really good journalist is someone who needs to be willing to think about things independently and to not follow what the rest of the pack is doing. That's the idea of groupthink is a problem within the mainstream media. To an extent, it's even a problem within independent media where you see a lot of outlets on both sides covering the same stories when there's obviously such a shortage of reporters and there's so many things that are just not being covered at all. I think when we look at the Globe and Mail, you know, there are still some good reporters in Ottawa. I think Bob Fife, he's the editor-in-chief at the Globe and Mail, is an example of one of Canada's best journalists. He's broken countless stories, including the SNC-Lavalin scandal. And one of the things that sets him apart from the rest of the pack is if he has a scoop that no one else is reporting on, he will follow that scoop. And he's not afraid to be the first person to break a story, even when at times the Liberal government will say this reporting is untrue. It takes a lot of guts to be able to go ahead and do something like that. I think other outlets are a little bit more comfortable standing back and seeing, okay, what's everyone else covering? I want to ask a question that's maybe a little bit different, but sort of in line, which is really the exact opposite of what you should do as a journalist. You should always seek to have your own scoops, your own sources, your own stories. You want to be ahead of the curve, not following the curve, but that takes a lot of courage because you're putting yourself out there. And when you're reporting on something that hasn't been reported on versus when you're following someone else's story, you're obviously putting yourself at a much greater chance of being wrong and getting the story wrong, as opposed to if you're writing something that everyone else is already writing about. Mm, that is so powerful. How, because you said, you know, that happens in mainstream following the curve, but it does happen in alternative as well. How do we check ourselves? How do we check ourselves on that curve that we're in alignment with truth, you know? I think that's different for each story. I think 
or sorry, each reporter, I think reporters all have different skill sets. For example, I have some colleagues that are very good researchers and they're very good at looking through government documents from local governments to federal governments and finding stories that no one else is talking about. Blacklocks does that really successfully. They obviously comb through government records and government documents to produce stories of government spending and just the government's really frivolity in ways that other outlets just simply aren't doing. I don't love spending a ton of time on my computer. I would rather build relationships with people in government. And if they have an interesting story to share with me, then that is my preferred method to be a journalist. I just don't have any interest in combing through online records. A lot of reporters do, and they're very good at that. So I think it's important to have a variety of reporters with different skill sets. And as a reporter, you know, you need to make sure you're not just doing what we would call newsjacking or rewrites where you're taking a story that has already been written and simply rewriting it with maybe a liberal bent or with a conservative bent, depending on the outlet that you work at. So I think it's just making sure that you're coming up with new and innovative stories, not just following what other outlets are doing and then maybe rewriting those stories. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something really important that there, there's different kinds of journalists and and some are really good at the research and digging in and some are really good with people getting interviews, building relationships and finding sources that way. Um, how does someone check themselves to make sure that their story is unique and original? Because there's so much rewriting going on or just like taking in a different story and then, as you said, twisting it. How... How do these stories come to you? I guess that's a better one. How do you find new innovative stories? I mean, there's really two methods. One thing is people will kind of give me scoops and then it's up to me to track down sources and try to verify the information that I have received. And so usually I know when I'm working on a story that's an exclusive to True North versus when I'm working on a story that's really just an update to something that another news outlet has covered. And there needs to be a variety of both. It's not to say you can only cover exclusives, especially when you're working for independent media where there's typically a shortage of content and a shortage of reporters. You do have to make sure you're putting out new content all the time. And so, but you also have to make sure you're spending that time to work on those exclusives. Sometimes that's simply just a matter of getting an interview with a premier or a political leader or a cabinet minister and asking them some questions that you've thought about um, and then getting their answers on that. That's another really good way to get an exclusive. So I'm always very cognizant when I'm working on a story that is something that is exclusive that I'm working on that no one else is working on. And, you know, even if you have the opportunity to go to a press conference and you can ask the premier questions, for example, during the recent provincial election that we had here in Alberta, I would often show up to press conferences and I would have the opportunity to ask either the NDP leader Rachel Notley questions or Danielle Smith, now our premier. And even the questions I asked would be much different than questions mainstream media were asking. So that would kind of allow me to have an exclusive because I just come at things from a different angle and I think about things differently. For example, we use tabulators for the advanced vote in the recent Alberta provincial election. And that was something that not a lot of people knew about and not a lot of people were asking about. I knew that was something that my readers would be interested in. I'm obviously writing for a different audience than somebody at CBC would be writing for. And so I was able to ask the premier about that. And so that story was exclusive to True North. Now, of course, I did ask her about it publicly. So other outlets all have the opportunity to hear her answer and to write about it as well if they wish. But that was an exclusive that initially I led and other outlets might have followed because they were interested in it later on. Mm. What do you think, what do you think alternative media or independent media could work on? 
because it's the people listening to my podcast or reading your stuff they can we can talk about how mainstream needs to get better and what you're touching on here is how mainstream isn't getting those variety of stories they're following the curve they're following a certain narrative but how could alternative media and independent voices get better I think that that answer changes from outlet to outlet. When I look at different outlets, I see different problems at different organizations that they specifically could address to improve maybe their website or maybe the quality of their writing or maybe just the amount of stories that they produce. I think a main thing would just be having a little bit more funding for all the outlets would help. I know that we sometimes have a like we don't have someone who's just dedicated to copy editing at True North at a lot of mainstream outlets. You would have one reporter or maybe several editors rather who are dedicated to full-time copy editing, making sure that the grammar is correct, making sure that the spelling is correct and doing some basic fact checking as well, which can really add credibility. I think when you have a story that's littered with spelling mistakes you know, it doesn't read the best as a reader. If you care about the, the quality of work, you might be a bit turned off by that and understandably so. So certainly I think just bolstering funding for True North is something I could say that would help if we had just endless funding to fill with these positions. And then another difficult thing is when there's so few of us, you can only really cover bigger picture stuff. For example, I'm the sole reporter here in Alberta covering Alberta news. Alberta is a pretty big province. There's tons of major headlines coming out all the time. Obviously, if we had more than one reporter here, that would allow us to do a little bit more local news. I do cover the city councils here and there, but Edmonton and Calgary both do pretty crazy stuff all the time. And it's hard to follow the day ins and outs with them just because it's just too much news in one province for just one person to cover. So we're doing, again, a lot of that bigger picture stuff. If we had more reporters, I think it could be more in-depth reporting and more specific to maybe some of the city council stuff that's going on versus some of the provincial stuff that's going on and then some of the provincial stuff that also has ties to the federal government. So it's really just a shortage of resources, which is great as we're growing all the time. More people are hearing about us, more people are donating, and that's allowing us to build our roster of really good reporters. But there is really a gap of talented people who are willing to come into this industry. A lot of students who study journalism want to go into the mainstream media or just decide to do something else entirely. So a lot of times when we hire someone, they are very fresh and they do require quite a bit of training. And journalism is something that takes a long time to learn and to do well. And even though I don't think you need to go to school to be a journalist, certainly by going to journalism school, that was a leg up for me. And so when we have people coming who are very fresh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it can be hard to find editors who have the time to really fully train reporters and get them to know the basics pretty quickly, just because it is so much to know. It really is. It's so much to know. And even though like, like I worked at post-secondary school, helping teach it, having workshops, having reporters come in all the time. It's, it's like, you always need to be growing. You always need to be learning. How, how do you keep your skills up to par? Like, how do you continue to get better? It's something that happens very naturally because as I mentioned, every story you cover is a bit different and it all has different angles and different implications. And a lot of times there's legal implications to the stories that you're covering as well. So you really have to be quick to figure things out on your feet and say, okay, this story presents this challenge. Uh, how am I going to cover this in a way that would make it look fair and unbiased and to make sure I get both sides of the story. So and also when you're covering legislation, like legislation is always different. It covers different parts of the economy or just different sectors. So you kind of have to get yourself up to, up to speed on the specific issues there as well. So you're constantly learning and growing, which is one of the fun parts about the job. It's certainly not for people who would just prefer something more laid back and a, a lower 
lesser pace. So the nature of the job is that it just forces you to get better because you always have to learn something new every single day. There's just no way you can go a single day without learning something new. And then when it comes to doing different mediums, like maybe doing a bit of podcasting or doing a bit of video work, you know, listening to yourself back and saying, Ooh, I really don't like how I said that, or I really don't like how I kept doing this weird thing with my face in that interview. I have to make sure not to do that again. Or sometimes in my podcast, I'll catch myself using like the same word a hundred times. And so I'm like, I need to get this word out of my vocabulary and never use it again because I used it a hundred times in a 10 minute podcast. So I think just being willing to go back and look at your work with a critical lens and saying, okay, these are things that I need to improve on and having good editors will sort of help you with that too. But it's definitely something you can do on your own as well. Yeah. I'm, I always say awesome. Or there's different things and you're like, oh my goodness, I need to be more aware of what I'm saying. Um, what would you tell people who feel that nudge, that pull to become a journalist to or create a podcast or do some type of independent media? <laughs> Maybe to pick a different industry. No, I'm just kidding. People used to always say that to me when I was first getting started in the field and I thought it was super annoying. And I was like, well, I'll prove you all wrong. And obviously I have. but. Um, I think it depends. Like, are you doing it because you're hoping to make a living off of this? Cause that's going to be extremely difficult for you, especially if you're not young and you are not willing to sort of live that really low income lifestyle for a little while before you make a name for yourself and can hopefully charge a little bit more money. You know, I have no problem with people starting a podcast. The podcast market is obviously very saturated right now. I think if you're hoping to do it and to become really big right away, you might have to just give your head a little bit of a shake because so many people are doing that. There's obviously nothing wrong starting it. I think it's great to have a hobby, great to improve your conversation skills and your public speaking abilities. And it can be a huge benefit and just something really fun if you enjoy working in those types of mediums. If you are looking to get involved in a writing capacity and it's something you want to do full time, definitely, I think independent media is always hiring. We're seeing all the layoffs happening in the mainstream media right now. We're definitely not seeing that in independent media where they seem to be hiring all the time. So you could definitely get started in one of those places. Another really good option would be to just simply start doing a couple of contract pieces here and there. I would say that for myself, as I mentioned, I started covering local news, which was a really great way because the stakes are just much lower and you're covering stories that sometimes feel a little bit silly. Like, I don't know, maybe the church organization put on a bake sale and they're raising money for a local charity. So it's just pretty simple stuff, but it helps you to learn the basics really quickly of the five W's and just to sort of learn how to style a story. And you could probably find some capacity in your local paper to do some work for them. And then maybe build your way up to a point where you're covering stories that have, you know, slightly bigger stakes like provincial politics or even federal politics. So I would say maybe just start by practicing and learning the fundamentals of journalism and learn how to style a story because it's very different than writing a paper. People think, oh, I love writing essays and I'm great at English. I'll be a great journalist, but it's a totally different style of writing. And it can be kind of tricky to go back and forth between the two. That's how what I found in university when I was studying English and journalism. It's doing great in my journalism classes, not so much in my English courses. Do you want to just lay out for people? Because I don't think I've talked about this before. Like, what is different about the writing, an essay versus an article? Well, with an essay, you sort of start with hopefully an interesting introduction. And by the end of the first paragraph for the introduction, you'll sort of say, this is what the thesis of my paper is going to be. And then you have 
anywhere from, I don't know, five to 12 pages to sort of expand on your points and explain what they're going to be. And you have to really go in depth about each of your points and give constant examples and explain those examples. In journalism, you basically have the first three sentences in which you want to lay out the context and present your thesis. So you have like a topic sentence, then maybe a bit of context, and then you would have your lead. All three of those form what's called the nut graph. And your lead is really to say, this is what the story is about. And here's why it's important. And so you're essentially learning how to fit as much information as you can into very concise writing all the time. You never want to say the same thing more than once in an article. And if your article is too long, traditionally in print newspapers, what would happen is they would actually just chop off the end of the article to fit it into the page layout if they needed to give it a smaller space. So that's why you have to make sure that you begin with the most important parts and towards the end, you have information that could easily be chopped off in case your editor said, you know, this story goes too long and we need the space. So it's just really hard for most people to understand that you actually begin with the most important parts. You don't like build up into saying this is where it gets good. You actually lead with what's interesting and what's important. And then you just give all your facts in a very clear and concise manner with the less important or less information towards the end. Because even though nowadays everything's pretty much online, your editors might not be concerned with the actual page count per se. Most people are not going to read till the end of the article. They're going to read the first five lines and they're going to move on to something else after that. I think the average time a user spends on an article is something like maybe 12 to 17 seconds. So you don't have very much time to present the facts. You know, it's interesting. I was chatting with someone the other day about this, though. That seems to be a real problem right now with media consumption is people are not they're reading just headlines, too. They're not even getting into the article and then they're commenting. And it's like, did you even read what this was about? Like, how how do you serve an audience if they're not willing to read a few paragraphs? You know, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I don't think you can get too caught up with the people that are actually willing to read the articles. I experience that all the time. I'll have written an article posted on Twitter and then someone in the comments will say, oh, well, you missed this or, oh, well, what about this? And I'm like, yeah, no, that is actually in the article. Obviously, you didn't bother to click on the link, but I don't really get myself too worked up about those types of people because they obviously are actually not very interested in informing themselves. And I don't really believe in handholding. I believe in individual responsibility. So if someone is actually concerned with educating themselves, they can find that information within the article if they bother to click on it. If someone actually has maybe more of an in-depth criticism or concern about the article and they want to send that over, I read most of the comments I get and I'll take that under consideration as well. Something I have found very interesting and effective is just a lot of success in the video landscape. I find a lot of my audience and my readers really like my podcast that I do every week, which is just a quick roundup of the main stories coming out of Alberta news. And most people watch the whole thing. It's usually only 10 to 15 minutes. They really like that it is in such a short format. And then they get the major headlines coming out of the province in a given week. And when I read the comments, I can see that people have thought critically about the stories that I presented to them. And they have interesting things to say or interesting questions that maybe I even haven't thought of about the story and just kind of gives me something, oh, this is something I could write about in a future week, or this is something that I should look into. So, you know, people that want to inform themselves will, and you'll be able to tell that very quickly in the comments that they send you, as opposed to people who just saw the headline of something and wanted to respond for whatever reason, because they want to be included, or maybe they just wanted to make a bit of a snide comment, and you're not ever going to be able to please anybody, and there's really no point to even try. Yeah, that's true. It's like, how do you, if people aren't going to read the article... How do you convince them to? They're just being reactive. Um, 
what has been challenging for you? What has been the most challenging things for you? Because you seem like a really well put together person who can think logically. Like that's probably why you're a really great journalist. But I imagine, you know, losing friends and and going through a journalism school where you are almost like alienated from other people just by certain beliefs and and wanting to debate. What has been challenging for you? The most challenging? Yeah, I would say something that is very true is that conservatives are just under far more scrutiny than anybody in the left wing, anyone in the mainstream media would be under. So I would say since joining independent media, the level of scrutiny has been much higher and very intense. And I just have noticed people take people on the left take a really strong interest in me personally and wanting to maybe write stories about me individually or just write, yeah, just follow me in kind of creepy and uncomfortable ways is something I didn't expect. But I have a lot of conservative commentators that I follow. I'm a huge fan of the Daily Wire. I really love watching Matt Walsh's work. And again, with Jordan Peterson. So I think it's important to have role models that kind of speak to some of the issues that you're facing. And even today, I was listening to Matt Walsh and he was talking about how conservatives are under so much more scrutiny than anyone in the left would be. And just kind of those types of encouragements and reminders are important just to say, you know, because I'm covering the truth that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. And the questions that I'm asking are making people really uncomfortable. And that's why there is this level of scrutiny applied to me. That's something that I found the most difficult. Obviously my university experience was challenging while I was in it for those four years. And I certainly didn't enjoy it. And when I have kids, I think I'll really encourage them not to attend a secular post-secondary university and certainly not to move away from home to do so if that is what they choose. But that was such a long time ago, and I've kind of made peace with the fact that that was my decision. And obviously, I've been successful in political reporting since then. So I guess you could say it was all really worthwhile. But I've just kind of had to adjust to the level of scrutiny being applied to me as a conservative journalist, certainly something I didn't experience while I was within the mainstream media. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. it. I'm sure I was listening to Jordan Peterson speak recently here in Alberta, and he said, anytime the media has come out with like a really strong story against him, it's what it, what was intended for evil has always later really improved his public profile or led to greater opportunities down the road. And so I think just kind of holding on to that and realizing that at the end, it is all worthwhile anyways, um, is important, but that's just something I found surprising. The scrutiny, like you're saying people writing articles about you and, and calling you out on the content you're creating essentially. Yes, exactly. Do you get a lot of, do you still get a lot of, um, like hate online? Oh, quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, less now that the provincial election isn't underway. It was so heightened during the election because tensions are just so high and it was a really close election. So people on both sides are sort of freaking out. And so I would show up to an NDP press conference and I would even just ask my questions. And that really upset a lot of people online. And it was just sort of surprising to see how much people cared and how engaged they were. Since the election has ended, I've noticed that that has significantly subsided because obviously they have lost and people have kind of gone back to their normal lives. And there's not that increased public interest that you see during an election. But it was something that I definitely noticed during the campaign. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I noticed when I started speaking out, I got a lot of scrutiny at the beginning and then it just dissipated because people just stopped following me. But what you're doing is really powerful because you're constantly challenging the echo chambers with what you're doing. I I imagine that it's consistent and it goes in those waves. Like with an election, you're going to have more, then it's going to die down, then maybe you'll you'll break through that echo chamber. Like that's a good sign in in a lot of ways that you are still getting scrutiny. 
Yeah. And I mean, I'm still very active covering day-to-day provincial politics. So depends. Some weeks you're not writing about anything super interesting and that scrutiny maybe isn't there because you didn't have an exclusive story that really rubbed anyone any type of way. And then other weeks it's going to be heightened for sure. So there's people who want to speak out. They want to say things online. They want to ask questions and they're really scared to do it because of the fear of scrutiny or what people will say or what people will think, what would you tell them besides, you know, looking to Matt Walsh and Jordan Peterson as like um, role models? What else do how do you deal with that? Because it's really hard for people. Yeah, I think it is really hard for people and that's intentional, right? The sort of cultural Marxism that we're seeing coming in has made it so that people are very afraid to speak out in question because there are repercussions. There can be repercussions at school with maybe you not having friends at university or maybe even your university threatening to expel you if you say something that's too controversial or at work if you work in a secular environment, there can be repercussions with your job or your employer saying we are not comfortable hiring you any longer. And even within the court system, we're seeing that it is more frequently targeting conservatives. And, you know, you might not even be in a situation where you are going to get a fair trial. So there's reasons for people to be concerned. And I understand why people are. I was in that place myself for a very long time when I worked in mainstream media till eventually I got to a point where I just felt it was untenable and had to leave. And, you know, I was kind of wondering about this recently because sometimes I kind of wonder if this is like really all worth it. My friends seem to have much simpler and calmer lives and they just kind of do their job and that's it. There's nothing extra outside of it that they have to deal with, no extra stress. But I was listening to Jordan Peterson speak recently, and he was saying that you speak the truth because you have to, because of what will happen to your society and what will even happen to your family if you don't speak the truth. And I think that is a very real principle in life. For example, if you do not speak the truth in your marriage, you're probably going to have a really unhealthy marriage where resentment is building up on both sides and you're not working through issues. And if you're not speaking the truth to your family, then it's the same type of thing. And I think that can be broader in terms of when we look at our society and our culture, if we're not speaking truth, we are really allowing ourselves to denigrate. And so when our society continues to move in a direction that we're very uncomfortable with, at a certain point, we really only have ourselves to blame because we were not there to speak up against it. We weren't willing to take the hits for things that were so important. We look at a lot of the issues that are being pushed today, for example, the gender ideology that's being pushed in schools. If we are not willing to speak out against some of what we're seeing right now, at a certain point, we only have ourselves to blame when that creeps into our own household and we're really facing the consequences for it. So I think it's pertinent for all of us to speak the truth. I think that you need to find yourself a group of friends or family or supporters who are like-minded and feel the same way as you and will be there to support you when the criticism and the critiques come because they definitely will come. But find those people who feel the same way as you and surround yourself with like-minded people and go to them for encouragement and support is my recommendation to people. But never underestimate how important it is to speak the truth and to have the courage to do so, no matter the cost. So how do we check ourselves again? How do we know that we know the truth? Do you know what I'm saying? How, how do we check that? Or is it about that back and forth? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a kind of important philosophical or existential question, if you will. My, my, my view on the world is rooted in my faith. I'm a Christian. And so I 
turn to the Bible for my source of biblical truth and for my faith and to really guide my worldview. And that's provided a very solid foundation for me. And I obviously have tons of friends who are like-minded as well. And that allows me to look at the world from a very solid point and to say, this is what I know to be true. And this is what I know to be true. And for example, very uh, kind of simple example, when we look at gender ideology, it's an obvious truth that there are two genders and that you cannot change your sex and that even your very genders within or your sex is, is coded within your DNA. So no matter what extra hormones you're taking or what extra surgeries you're doing, you're not going to be able to change your DNA. And so we know that you can't change your gender or your sex. And so that's just an obvious truth. And I think it's important to have those discussions, but I think for a lot of the issues that we're seeing nowadays, you know that they're wrong because they're making you uncomfortable when they come up and it's making you uncomfortable. People are asking, asking you to repeat things that you just aren't really sure about. And I think it's important to investigate those emotions and to say, what is my conscious telling me here? And what am I going to do about it? Mm. So yeah, go within a little bit more too. It's like, yeah. Um, what I ask everyone this question, what's the biggest lie you once believed? Where did you change your mind the most? Um, that's a good question. I would say, I'm not sure what the biggest lie I once believed was. I think maybe when I worked within mainstream media, I wasn't aware of, I don't know. I just think maybe I wasn't fully aware of how harmful it was for me to repeat things that I knew weren't true. I actually read a really interesting book. I believe it's by Rob Dreher called live not by lies. And it essentially calls people to not repeat the lies that they see in society because that will allow for total takeover of a totalitarian regime, such as what we saw with previous countries when they fell under communism. And so I think after reading that, it really challenged me to change my approach to my work because I knew that I couldn't repeat things that I knew were a lie. And so even when we saw some of the restrictions that were being implemented through COVID-19, it really reshaped the way I had to cover all of these issues. And so I think the lie for me was not realizing how harmful it was to perpetuate these existing narratives that the federal government was so keen on pushing and that the mainstream media was pushing. What was the name of that book again? Live Not By Lies. Live Not By Lies. Yeah. So essentially you just didn't realize like how harmful it was to be going with the flow, even though you saw yourself as like, I'm working within the system. I'm doing my best. I'm giving a conservative voice. There was still harm that was being done by taking part in that. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. It's so, it's so fascinating. What do you think, like, what do you think would the media landscape, how do you think it needs to shift and change to be in more in alignment with truth and integrity in the future? Well, I think it's very simple. All the federal funding needs to be pulled. Tax breaks needs to be pulled. Every cent of taxpayer dollars that is currently be going to that's currently going to uphold the media structure needs to be removed immediately. I don't think taxpayers should be forced to pay for a product that they don't want and that they aren't using. And especially when probably about 50% of the population, if not more, maybe slightly less, doesn't agree with the narratives that are being pushed by the mainstream media. Why are we being forced to pay for this is absolutely ridiculous. And it's actually quite sickening when you think about it. And I think we'll see who's left standing at the end of the day. If you have a market for your audience that's willing to pay for your work, by all means, go for it because then at least we can have some competition within the industry and some of the independent media outlets that are 
currently ongoing and are doing so very successfully will have even a larger share of the market to compete for because people will be forced to pay for their content. So I think once federal funding is pulled, we'll be able to see who's left standing, who has a funding model that's working, who's willing to have which outlets are still able to make a living basically for themselves. I know Global Mail, for example, they have a pretty expensive subscription. I think they would be probably just fine if federal funding was removed. Maybe they would have to lay off some staff, but they would certainly be able to continue going. And I think that will solve all of our problems. I, I'm not going to sit here and try to monitor mainstream media or say what they can and can't do. I think we just simply need to remove federal funding and see who can even make a go of it. Yeah. So like more of a free market type of like, see how you serve your audience. And if you get viewership and you get people paying you to do the service, the product. Well, exactly. And it's just ridiculous that my tax dollars are going to pay for CBC news. I don't watch CBC. I don't support a lot of what they've done. I think they were very biased in the provincial campaign towards Danielle Smith. I don't want to be paying for them. They are way overpaid as it is. Let's remove our federal funding from that. And it let's just make it a open market. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the going to the, to the election? What were some of the slants that you saw taking place um, in the Alberta election? Since she even was running in the UCP leadership race, the mainstream media really hasn't had the time for Danielle Smith. And we would even see that in the ways they would cover stories. They would just have headlines that were really not at all what she had said, trying to make her look bad, which was just a little bit ridiculous. But one of the main problems with CBC is they had written a story which relied on anonymous sources to say that staff in the premier's office had contacted Crown Prosecutor. Crown prosecutors about charges stemming from the Coots border blockade, which we know arose um, out of sentiments and disagreements with the government's COVID-19 policies. And essentially, after that story was published, the CBC updated it to say that they had, in fact, seen these alleged emails and questions between Daniel Smith's office and Crown prosecutors. And the premier's office has denied that these emails existed. And there was a audit done to look through emails to see if the emails existed. The emails weren't found. Crown prosecutors have said the emails don't exist. The premier's office has said the emails don't exist. So we don't even know if the story has any legs to it at all. It certainly seems like it doesn't. CBC, of course, can just fall under the sword that they are going to protect their anonymous sources in this case. But it was sort of a damning story that really had legs throughout the election campaign and was brought up time and time again. And it seems like there's actually no basis for this story whatsoever. Mm. What do you think are some of the, like, that? that's a great example. What are some other, like, um, misconceptions that around the election that were perpetuated by mainstream media? Um, I just found that whenever there was a press conference, for example, Rachel Notley would have a press conference and she would announce a policy. And a lot of the reporters would line up to ask her very specific questions about how that policy would be enacted versus when Danielle Smith would have a press conference and would announce a policy that a reelected UCP government would implement. There didn't seem to be a lot of interest in what they were announcing, but there was a lot of questions on, you know, past comments that she had made on healthcare when she was a podcast host. And for example, there was also the wildfire crisis was ongoing in the province during the election campaign. It still is ongoing. I think we have about 70 wildfires in the provinces north right now. 
but there would be questions, you know, she would maybe start off a press conference with a quick announcement about the wildfires ongoing in the provinces north. And then she would sort of shift and make a announcement as UCP leader. And she would get questions and criticisms about whether it was appropriate for her to be making comments about the wildfires in her as premier and then sort of move on to make an announcement as UCP leader. And there was just really not a lot of interest in what her party was announcing. And there was just so much more focus on old things she had said with the irony, of course, being that Rachel Notley herself was premier at a time and no one really seemed to want to talk about the former NDP record. And certainly Rachel Notley didn't want to talk about her former record. Yeah. Just a double standard that we see. Um, you're able to go to lots of press conferences and ask questions, but there's other media outlets like Rebel News that are not welcome. Is this a true statement? Yeah, it's true. How and and let's chat a little bit about that. Like that blows my mind that there are media outlets that are not welcome. That blows my mind. I, how how can that be justifiable? I mean, it's not justifiable at all. Of course, the NDP shouldn't be banning reporters that they don't like from their press conferences. It was kind of a weird situation during the leadership campaign. For example, if I was to send a media request to the NDP, they wouldn't respond to my emails or my phone calls or my texts. And when I showed up in person during the election, they didn't really know what to make of it. And initially they weren't going to let me ask my questions. So I just kind of yelled them out because I was there and I'm going to do my job. And then I found that later on in the campaign, they were just kind of accepting that I was there and they would give me the mic to ask my questions. But yeah, they wouldn't let Rebel News ask their questions. They wouldn't let um, the counter signal. They actually had the counter signal removed from the premises on several occasions. And they took issue with something Western Standard published. So they used to have a fine working relationship with the Western Standard, but don't take their questions anymore either. But yeah, you know, it's not justifiable at all. It's It's just indicative, I think, of what, the Alberta NDP thinks of conservatives. And it was just really concerning during the election when they're supposed to be campaigning for votes. If this is how they're treating prominent conservative voices during a campaign when they are campaigning for votes, you know, how would they treat us if they were in office and formed government and didn't really need to listen to our concerns at all at that point? Yeah. And then was Danielle Smith taking anyone's questions? Was the UCP? Yeah, they didn't have as many media availabilities, but they never barred press conference. They never barred any reporters from attending. Yeah. Yeah, that's so wild to me. I just think it makes people look so bad, but then but but then the people who agree with that get excited about it. It's like it's like they get a hit like, yeah, the NDP is taking a stance. I, it's it's just wild. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to see happen in the next 5 years. Do you have any do you have any uh predictions? In the media landscape? I think one of the reasons that NDP supporters get so excited about it is because they stand on a little bit of this moral high ground where they think that conservative voices are actually reprehensible and gross and disgusting and shouldn't be listened to. Basically, the broader Canadian society has learned to tolerate only the most progressive of conservative voices. And we even saw that within the Conservative Party. Andrew, or sorry, Aaron O'Toole really sought to shift the Conservative Party to the center and to appeal to 
a broader base by do, making that shift. And he what didn't represent libertarians. He didn't represent social conservatives or really real conservatives in any meaningful way. And so we've seen that shift and we've seen our leaders across the country, same with Doug Ford in Ontario, sort of sell out conservatives time and time again. And our media loves it because they hate actual real conservative voices. That was very obvious during election night when, for example, Global News, they had their election night panel and the most conservative voice they could handle having on their show was Leela Ahir, who was a candidate in the UCP leadership race last summer, who I think got like less than 1% of the vote or maybe just around 1% of the vote and isn't really a conservative, doesn't have a lot of conservative viewpoints, isn't really accepted or hailed as a conservative, which is pretty evident by the fact that she received such a low voter turnout. So we see this exclusion of conservative voices from the media repeatedly. And they justify that because they think that we're racist and they say, you know, lots of negative things, but also they don't believe in climate change and they just don't think that we're even really worth discussing. So it's been interesting to see how Pierre Polyev has sort of handled some of those criticisms and even how he handles the media, I think is refreshing because he doesn't really tolerate their BS and he kind of throws their questions back in their faces when they ask them something that's loaded and something that's biased. So it'll be interesting to see where we go in the next five years. I think it's a great thing for conservatism that Danielle Smith won. Even though she's not a social conservative, she does have a lot of really strong conservative beliefs, obviously has a lot of support. Up in Ottawa, we have Pierre Polyev, who has finally been able to rally conservatives together and, again, has tons of support from conservatives in a way that Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole just didn't. So it'll be interesting to see if we can see the pendulum swing back within the next five to ten years. If we don't, I think it could really spell a lot of problems for conservatives in this country where we are excluded from society, not just from having a voice in public spheres, but where we're increasingly excluded from places of work and just targeted for our beliefs time and time again. Mm. That's interesting. I see a lot of people building their own stuff, like in our community, like shifting out because it's like, why would I want, I often think like, why would I want to go work in a in a corporation or an organization that doesn't want me there also. But then do we need to be intermingling too? Is there something important about, you know, diversity in belief, not just a diversity in, you know, looks or, or things like that? Yeah, I think it's important that we don't shut off the conversation. We still need to be willing to have dialogue from people who have different thought and opinion from us. I would argue that conservatives aren't really the ones who struggle with that. We often are willing to have open dialogue with the other side. We're very used to being around people who don't agree with us, whether it was in school or whether it was in university or whether it's in a place of work. And it's often people on the left who will find out that someone is a conservative and not want something to do with them anymore. It's very rare that that happens the other way around. So yeah, certainly it's important that we still have those discussions open, but at the same time, we need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our family. I wouldn't just throw my kids into the public system and say, well, we need to keep that dialogue going. So I'm going to let my kids be educated in the system. No, absolutely not. My kids will be protected. I will protect their minds from some of the radical propaganda that we're seeing come down and taking a hold in our education system. So you need to kind of find those boundaries. I think building community is a really great way to keep that dialogue going. I doubt you're going to be able to convince anybody in a Twitter or Facebook battle, but if you have a neighbor who maybe doesn't have agreeing opinions with you build a relationship with that person and start discussions and dialogue with them to get them thinking about the issues at hand you're, you're not going to be successful online but really work on building those relationships within a community and that is a way that you can be effective and actually work on changing your culture because our politics aren't going to change until our culture changes 
what does a what does a healthy culture and a healthy community look like to you? Well, it's one where people are allowed to have disagreements and differing thoughts of opinions. And obviously we've shifted away from that very drastically because you're really not allowed to have differing opinions nowadays, or it's viewed as some sort of hate crime. So we've shifted from that a long time ago, but basically I think one is where we really value free speech and free speech is where people can say things and not have to fear for their job or for their livelihood and where discussion is welcome. And obviously we've just seen such a radical shift from that in the last 10 years. Yeah, I agree. It, it needs to be like freedom has become an alt-right term, which is so wild. And like people like Russell Brand are called alt-right because they're, and they're not, they're not. It's, it's so, it's so fascinating. Um, how can people find you, interact with you and support your work? Yeah, so you can find me on Facebook. I have a very small Facebook page, which is just not growing. Facebook doesn't like political content, but you can just find me under Rachel Emanuel. And I am on Twitter um, at Emanuel underscore Rach. And if you want to email me with a story idea, that email is included on my Twitter. Um, my podcast is posted to YouTube every Saturday afternoon. It's called the Alberta Roundup. You can find it on True North's page. That's pretty much it. That's all I do for social media. And that is more than enough for me. No kidding. No kidding. Um, have you not been, um, you're okay on YouTube. You haven't been, you haven't gotten warnings or anything like that. No, true North is, I think maybe gotten one or maybe one warning or something like that, but, um, nothing serious. It's not my YouTube page. It's true North's page that we fall under. So I, uh, luckily don't have to operate that. I just make my show and send it in. And we have a wonderful team that puts it together and posts it for me because I just hate doing all that stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what would you, like final words for people listening to this. What do you think is like the most important information for people to start to venture into? Because we're in an age where it's like information overload and it's like how you can't know everything. So a lot of Alberta listeners here, what, what are some important things that they need to maybe look into a little deeper? I think it just depends on your personal interests. I think I'm not going to say that there's a one size fits all for everybody. I think you know, look into the issues that you're interested in. I would say the main thing is just stay informed. I know a lot of conservatives and I know a lot of Christians who just don't like politics. And so they don't really bother reading the news. And, and then they're surprised when something like COVID happens and all of a sudden all their rights and restrictions have been taken away, even though the signs that this was coming were kind of written on the walls for the last two years with the encroachment on our civil liberties as seen through various pieces of legislation passed by the liberal government. So I would say it's important for you to stay informed. You don't have to stay super informed on every issue. Pick some that are important to you. Maybe you really care about the gender ideology be being pushed in schools, stay informed on what's going on in the education system here in Alberta, you know, write letters to your MPP, write letters to your MP, pick a couple topics that are important to you and follow them closely is what my recommendation would be. Yeah, don't get too weighed down. And then what are like other actionable things people can be doing? Um, I mean, if you genuinely care about the direction that your society is headed in, then the most important thing is to get involved, whether that is working in politics doesn't necessarily need to be that maybe you just want to get involved on your local school board or on your library board where we're seeing drag queen story hour happen every other weekend, get involved where these types of decisions are being made 
Um, there's lots of room for that. I think conservatives to our own detriment have removed ourselves from politics too much. And certainly from local politics where a lot of the decisions that impact us most closely are being made. So, you know, maybe go to a year city council meeting here and there, stay informed on what's on the agenda, show up to one of the meetings and, and area concerns. That would be my recommendation. Find somewhere local where you can get involved and make a difference within your community while also building relationships. Uh, thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you for having the courage to, you know, be a voice that gets scrutinized and for for taking the jump from mainstream to independent media and for con continuing to do what you do. It's it's really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And yeah, hopefully we can chat again soon. You bet.